Kia ora aotearoa and welcome to Generally Famous. I'm Simon Bridges and every week I talk to generally famous but always interesting guests about life, love and what makes them tick. Today, renowned child development, parenting and neuroscience educator with a background as an early childhood educator, a child therapist, social services manager, uni lecturer, he's a father of three and also being the foster father to many. Welcome Nathan Wallace, it's fantastic to have you on the show. Oh, Cheers Simon, thanks for that, good to be here. Hey, um, I thought given that we are going to be talking child development and neuroscience yeah. um, a lot, it, it would be really good to get a sense of your early days, uh, right. as, it, as it were, and what, what sort of was going on for you and and your upbringing. Yep. So did you have a normal white sandwich with Marmite sort of upbringing? No, or was not at all. No, it was more of a once for warriors, you know, hard out sort of upbringing. Had two alcoholic parents. My, um, I didn't know who my father was, um, so I had a stepfather from pretty early. But he was um, sent to jail as a rapist um, early in my childhood, and I spent. So you're not exaggerating. No, you no. are once were warriors. Well, yeah, as yeah, as much as anybody else is that comes from that sort of environment where there's abuse and violence and addiction and you know all of that sort of stuff. Have you ever met your father? Yes, I have. I met him two weeks before he died. My right. birth father, just through a genetic bank site, I found happened to find out who he was. And that was wonderful. That was really life-affirming. He was wonderful. You didn't know he was dying when you reached out? Or no, he, he didn't know I existed. And um, my name was already in a data bank, you know, with my DNA, because that's sort of part of my job. I'm interested in what you're... Not knowing who my father was, I was doubly interested in my papa. And um, so, yeah, and then he was dying. So his family thought, oh, we need to save his papa and genealogy, we'll join this website. And when it joined, they matched up with me as a son, and so they got in contact, and I met him, and now I've got another whole family. Wow. Cousins and brothers and sisters. And it turns out I'm sort of 95% like him. Makes a sense why I didn't have much of a sense of belonging growing right. up, because, bang, I fit into his family. He's like Māori. Nothing. Yeah. Um, and how long ago was this that you met him, just a couple of only, weeks before? Only about five years ago, wow. something, six years ago, something like that. I didn't tend to go here, but it's, uh, you know, amazing. I mean, did you, um, did that change you at all? I mean, you, you were saying to me it didn't as much as now you know this other side of you and you can see things in yourself. And Yeah, it did change me because a part of my life story had been who is my father, where do I come from, where do I belong? So that story sort of stopped because then I knew. So it allowed me to be more just me and not sort of wondering who I was. What do you think you learned about yourself from meeting him? Um, that I'm okay. Yeah. Yeah, that I belong. Mm. Was he, um, I know this is a terrible word, I can't think of a better one, was he normal? He was, he was normal, he was a wonderful, wonderful man, like he was a loving father and, you know, loved by people and had a really good heart and he was very, very much like I think of myself. And and without so you saying anything obviously that you'd be uncomfortable with, what was the story in terms of why he wasn't your dad growing up because he knew nothing about it because my mother was a fairly full-on alcoholic and um, mum even when she went through the list of the possible fathers that his name never even featured so mum was a bit of a party girl you know that's the truth so and she wasn't sure who the father was so that's what you grew up alcoholic um, mum alcoholic stepdad he's your stepdad throughout your growing up yep yep and you grew up in Milton yep that's right the metropolis of yeah 
mighty Milton. <laughs> uh, uh, and was that in itself scarring or not? <laughs> no, I'm yeah. sorry. I'm sorry to no, the um, to the three podcast listeners yeah, from yeah, Milton. Yeah, yeah. No, um, no. I, you know, I can joke about Milton. I do all the time. The town of opportunities. That's what byline. The town of opportunities. We all joke. The only opportunity is to work in the Milton Hilton, the new the new prison they built on the outside. <laughs> but you know, I joke about it. But no, I think it was actually incredibly nurturing, and I was lucky and, and that I grew up in Milton. I had extreme behaviour as a teenager, but there wasn't much extreme to get up to. You know, like yeah, um, yeah. marijuana was about as extreme as it got. Running so in a field that with sheep. Me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. About, um, and, and, and the teachers I had at high school, you know, I wouldn't be where I was now if I didn't have that community that, you know, I, my history teacher was my foster mother, my last foster parent in my, you know, last couple of years of high school. And I had lots of teachers that took an extra interest and put in the extra and, you know. We're talking a bit south of Dunedin. Yep. Before you hit Mount Clother, about Country 50 town. minutes south of Dunedin. Yeah. So south of Otago officially. I did live in Invercargill for a year and go to Tweedsmuir Intermediate as well. Yeah. No, and, and so, and you, I mean, it's just in your um, Māori whakapapa. Mm-hmm. I mean, is your mum Pākehā or? Yeah, she's Pākehā with a little bit of American Indian, but right. essentially Pākehā. But she, who she was convinced that she knew who my father was and thought it was this other guy, so who was Māori as well. Right. So I was always told I was Māori right from the start. And because Māori could tell I was Māori. So mum thought, oh, she can't. Mum already had two kids, her Pākehā. Yes. Her husband had died. And, um, yeah, so lots of Māori would say, oh, he's Waka Blonde. And so and mum, you know, for all of her um, problems, you know, had some insight. And so she was like, oh, it's probably important that that not be cut off from him and that be acknowledged. So oh. she always raised me acknowledging that I was Māori. And they, I got away with lots of behaviours because of that. Oh, that's why he... See stuff that other people don't see, and that's why he talks to dead people, and that's why right. that's why he's weird. So I got lots of leeway for being Māori, so it was good. That said, though, I, you know, I, I don't, you know, I don't want to. I'm probably being very um, um, stereotypical here, but my sense of Milton, it's yeah. not. Um, let's put it this way: it's not. Um, yeah. It's not Rotorua. No, it's not. It's but not it's more Gizzi. Rotorua than anywhere else in the South Island, because the two places where the shearing gangs go are Ashburton and Milton. Right. So if you grow up in the South Island, you go, oh, you don't see very many Māori. You do if you lived in Ashburton or Milton, because that's where all the shearing gangs come. So it was actually a constant stream of Māori, and I was quite exposed to Māori culture, you know, as a kid. Is not it, actual proper Māori culture, but right. you know, once were warriors Māori culture. Yeah. Um, and the, the leftovers of that. Like all the Māori kids that I hung out with, we were all real dead proud of being Māori yep. and would know what our iwi was but didn't know anything about marae or, you know, other than a few words and stuff. But still strongly, you knew you weren't sort of, you were sort of not white. There's a feeling of difference there. Yeah, yeah, the, the feeling of identity and connection with all of them. It wasn't just the Māori ones, though, because Milton's such a small town, so the Māori and, and Pacific Islanders all hung out in the one group. Yeah, and there was actually one Pākehā that hung out in that group as well. So it was a group of people that just didn't feel like they attached to the mainstream. And today, my sense is, and I, I recognise this in myself, um, you have more of a sense of that and an understanding of what it means to be Māori. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. But this is a later in life thing that's happened. Well, when I first, you know, there was no Māori at school, no, no kapahaka, none of that when I was at school. I'm 51, so there was none of that in Milton then. So I only got exposed to it when I went to university. Yeah. Um, but when I f- and I started studying it and you know hanging out with Māori then, what I realised was that heaps of the things they called Māori were actually Nathan. Yeah. I didn't feel like I'm a separate person that they're going to adapt, adopt that culture. Yep. I felt like oh, there's a whole culture of Nathans. All these rules that I'd worked out for myself that are how I see the world. Um, turns out they're all labelled Māori things. Yes. Were you? 
and I, I'm going to use this word because I just want to get out whether you were or not. Were you scarred from your upbringing, or you say it wasn't that? It, no, no, it was. Um, yeah, it was. Yeah, you have your your tarmokal, You know, certainly there was scars. But I've then gone on to do lots of therapy, and I've gone to train as a therapist, and I've um, you know, um, yeah, done lots of healing since then. Oh, is it was it violent? Or? Yep, yeah, it was very violent. And and I'm presuming from everything you've said and what you've said about alcoholism, it was violent in every sense of that word and yeah. touches physically, but also you know emotionally and all those yeah, sort of all things. those things. Um, and your stepfather is this guy, and I'm again stereotyping. There's some yeah. wonderful stepdads out of there, but yeah, right. this is a guy who didn't take an interest in you, or no, no, he was really just a, a child predator, and you know, like was preying on the circumstances of my mother being right. pretty incompetent, right. Mm-hmm. You now are renowned, as I said in the intro, um, for things like your um, educating and talking to you know, yep. parents, but all sorts on the first thousand days and the importance of it and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, well, I'm presuming you can't remember your first thousand days. It could be wrong. I can't remember mine. I do have really, my memory kicked in very early, so right. I do remember lots about my early childhood. Well, I suppose I'm just, I wanted to ask you, you know, Knowing what you know now about how mm-hmm. you grew up yep. and the fact that it was the opposite of the nurturing, loving, loving and so on that you know yep. is so fundamental. Um, I don't know. Just took me through that. What's the effect of that? What do you think that um, – yeah. how does that shape the Nathan Wallace I've got sitting a metre away from me right now? Um, I think all of those experiences were valuable no matter how horrific they were. I wouldn't want to live them again, but um, you know, when you come to the outside of something, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Um, I can see pretty clearly the reason I and my brothers and sisters really have survived and done so well is because we also had these other resiliency factors. Like you might have all these horrible risk factors, but I had um, a grandmother who lived on the corner, Nana right. Cook, who was not really my grandmother, but just a old lady in the neighbourhood who didn't have um, grandchildren yet and was <laughs> sick of waiting for her kids. Um, she found me outside once when my mother had left me there and forgotten I was there, and I was only a few months old, and... She sort of, you know, she tells the story that, you know, God spoke to her and told her that she was my guardian and she just looked after me the rest of my life. She, so when I had a horrible childhood, I also had a blissful, wonderful childhood when I went to Nana Cook's and got treated like a king. And, you know, so I think that's what's made you resilient. You don't, you find most children, if they have, resil- if they have trauma and good resilient experiences, the majority of them grow up to be resilient, contributing people. Mm. It's when there is trauma by itself with nothing else to counterbalance that. Mm. So yeah, I had lots of those um, risk factors, but I also had lots of resiliency factors. Moments, people, Nina Cook, yep. you could look to and have yep. special times, yep. comfort, safety, yep. nurturing. Yeah, yeah. And also the prison system helped because my stepfather was um, convicted of rape when I was about eight months old, so he was gone for a couple of years. Right. So I got a couple of good years in there with um, you know, my first thousand days. And that actually makes a big difference. It makes a huge difference. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then the adult in your sort of home was just your mum? Um yeah, well for that time that he was in prison, yeah. yeah. But I was sort of farmed around so I had a my mum's actual mother was um would have me a lot of the time as well. She had like about sixty grandchildren because mum's from a large family. Mm. But I got all the special treatment because I didn't have a father. So she wouldn't take the other children and babysit them. She was like, no, nah, I'll be babysitting my whole life. But I'll take Nathan because he doesn't have a father. So I also had an auntie who was in the local orphanage who got, um, he was like 12 when I was born, and she was allowed to come out of the orphanage after school and come to her sister my mother's house to help look after me when I was there 
Um, and so she's always been a huge, loving, positive Wonderful. influence in my life. Wonderful. So I've always had all these people around me that absolutely loved me and adored me. So I think that you know, obviously is what made it. Well, thanks so much for sharing that. It's um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 a remarkable story you've told us. I'm really interested in as well how you got from there to this position where you are, like very well-known New Zealander, a go-to on a bunch of incredibly important topics for us all, um, big following, you know, I, I was saying to Chris, our producer before, you know, people who know you, love you and what you say, and but yeah, you know, it's, it's true, right? So I know at some point you become an early childhood teacher. Yeah, I went straight from high school to teacher's college and trained as a primary school teacher. And then worked out that it was really the naughty kids I liked the most and why I'd really gone into teaching. So I went back and did a master's degree in, um, in counselling so that I could work with kids specialised in like trauma in early years. So I become a, like a child therapist. And then spent most of my career doing that. So working with the naughty kids, which I always just had this huge advantage in. You know, I was just always hugely successful at that. So you did that for quite a long time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could always speak their language. They recognised within two seconds that I was from the same place as they were. And they listened to me and... And, you know, I was on hot demand. Doesn't <laughs> strike me, that doesn't strike me like, I don't know, if I saw you walking down the street, I don't know what I'd think you were yeah. doing with yourself. I'd, you know, possibly know. possibly um, DJ in some, some hip club and, right. I don't know, Soho or something. Most people think that I can't. Well, for most of my life I've been interpreted I look like someone who comes from a private school who's had a lovely upbringing. And I wonder if that's some, you know, because that's kind of that designer stubble, Nathan. Well, it's that feedback's come back to me my whole life, even before I could grow stubble, you know. Um, <laughs> so um, I think it was about um, rejecting the environment I come from. So, you know, I was conscious and very visual person. So I looked different to the environment that I was in. But you say. didn't. Sounds like you didn't fall into being an ECE in early childhood. You you actually no. intentionally went that way. Yeah, 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 yeah. I and just. And then you sort of... Um, I was always the family babysitter, so right. in this dysfunctional family where no one looked after the kids properly, I jumped in and looked after the kids properly. And when you babysit there, they don't go out for a couple of hours on a Friday night. They go out on Friday and come back on Sunday, so, and you're with a newborn baby. So I grew up knowing how to, you know, I could always attune to babies and um, sort of, yeah. So a lot of that is intuitive, right? It's you... Um, having a heart for it, doing what you think is right. What happens, though, my sense is you then, this becomes, and I mean this in a positive way, mm-hmm. but it becomes academicised, if that's a real word, yeah. right? Yeah. You, how does that happen where you attach learning and knowledge and research mm-hmm. to what you're doing? Um, yeah. Is this just something that slowly happens over a decade or what? Yeah, it is. I mean, it starts out with going to teacher's college, and if I'm interested in people and where they come from, then I studied human development. And that's really the area that I'm in now. And right at stage one, and I, you know, you do lots of different papers at stage one, that's the paper I straight away got A's in easily. It's like I clearly had a, you know, that intuition and stuff made that a subject a whole lot easier for me. And I was fascinated in where people come from, how much is nature and how much is nurture. Mm. You know, I'm still fascinated by that, you know, with the story of me and my father and turning out to be so much like him and I laugh like him and express my language like him. Amazing name. Yeah, it's incredible how much. But I don't think there's a set recipe for all humans too, I think, you know. It's a different number for each in terms of nature and nurture. Yeah, we are um, we, we complex sort of characters. Yeah, um, each unique yeah, so so that's you, and 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 that's you, and you. You're at pains to say, I think, that you're not um, you're not a neuroscientist. No. You know, you haven't got a PhD up the wazoo, and you know the, the I'm starting the PhD, right? Yeah, yeah. 
But you, but you are you are deeply read. You have been in universities around this stuff, and it's on that basis. You know, you are able to you know speak with a lot of authority on this stuff. Well, when neuroscience first came out, I was the human development lecturer at the university in the Department of Cognition. So yeah. neuroscience didn't have its own department. So yeah. it was me and another woman, Miriam McCaleb, that were designing the first papers around neuroscience. Because I'd been at this work, is University of Canterbury, I think. Yeah, yep, yep, right. yep. that's right. I'd been work. I'd been exposed to it with working with um, parents as first teachers because that was a program that sort of integrated all that new neuroscience in throughout the program. So, you know, that was my very first job, really. So my very first job, I learned all this neuroscience about stuff I already knew about babies and different developmental stages and how to respond and stuff. So it all really resonated for me because I already had that, you know, network of thinking about human development anyway. So, yeah. And when I, I was really young when I became a parent, so I thought, oh, better go along into a parenting group. So I enrolled in a parenting group. And, you know, by, by the third, third session, I was running the parenting group. You know, I was like 20 and everyone else was 30-something. Um, but it wasn't until I did that group that I knew how much I knew, you know. Um, and people in the group were just naturally, after the presenter said, because she wasn't highly competent, sorry to say, but after, after she explained what she tried to explain, the group just got into the habit of then turning to me and looking at me and I'd re-explain it. And so that, um, and then they go, oh, and get it. So I started to click. Yes, I started running parenting groups and... Yep. You know, then when I went to Wānanga, and a similar thing happened, the Bikomatua, who were I could see were baffled and did not understand what the person was saying, and I could take the complex thing they were saying and say, oh, "What all he's saying is it just means this." Hmm. So I think I can take the complex down to simplify. The, and like you say, I have had the job. You know, I worked for a long time with Brainwave, hmm. and had to be and at the university. You have to be work. exposed to the to the to research based information and be immersed in that. You know, as a job for years. Let's crack through some of it. We could spend, I, I could spend hours on this, but I, yeah. I want to sort of, let's talk about some of what you know and what it means for, for parents and, and wider whanau. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, the first thousand days, yep. um, I have a sense of it, but mm-hmm. why is this so important? And the actual neuroscience of it is really complex, so it's about making it meaningful to parents. And essentially, what makes it meaningful is understanding that your outcomes aren't just determined by genes. You know, parents acted as if bloody Albert Einstein or Aparana Nata was your birth father, then you were just sweet. You had all the genes to be really brainy, you just have to feed you and water you. I think that's why we think early childhood teachers are not that important, because we think we're just feeding them and watering them while the genes grow. But genes make up 50% of your outcomes. You know, academically, that's a number. It's a 50-50. So uh, the other 50% of your outcomes are around the environment, and they're not across your whole lifespan. Basically, the human brain is in lots of ways, seems like it's genetically designed to interact with the environment in the first thousand days of its existence to see what sort of brain it's going to need for the rest of its life. So it's gathering data to see, does it need to be on survival mode? Or um, is everything called calm and safe and it can actually afford to grow all those extra frontal cortex things? Um, So, yeah, the way I get it meaningful to parents is to talk about how eldest children statistically grow up to be higher qualified and earn more money than the rest of the kids. Obviously not all the time. I'm the youngest of six. What are you trying to say? Yeah, yeah. It's not all the time because if your eldest child becomes an early childhood teacher, bugger all chance are <laughs> the richest in the family, right? So, but if you take a hundred at random yeah. people, you know that population. Early childhood goes. owner. Now that's a different story, yeah, Nathan. You've been story. missing a trick yeah, there, yeah, buddy. Yeah, yeah, I know. I was never really very motivated by money. Yeah. Which now that I'm fifty something, I'm starting to regret that. <laughs> <laughs> well, is it a bit like this stuff? It's never too late to try. So the basic thing, though, is right. Is what I get from it. Thousand days. It really matters. You can Set shape you a little mind. Yeah. What I want to understand, though, um, one thing I'd be keen to understand, are we talking here in terms of because that love and nurturing and security and interaction makes you 
happier as a general rule over yeah. life? Or are we talking about how we can make a little Einstein, or is it all of that? All of that, really, because it's just about the development of your frontal cortex, brain number four, the brain that really makes us human, that prefrontal cortex. And that's kind of optional. It doesn't just come online because you're fed and, and nurtured. It comes online because of all of your... Um, your safety responses are kept calm in the early years of life, and that allows it to grow. So, um, yeah, the firstborn child, I mean, it's obviously a complex thing, but it's about what I say to parents is we know that on average you speak 20,000 words a day to your firstborn child in the first year of life, and on average you speak 15,000 words a day to all the other kids. That's probably the major driver of what, because your firstborn child is getting 20,000 units of data about how intelligent they need to be. Mm. The other kids are getting 15,000 units. Mm. Now, it's not just a cause and effect thing. You know, it's mm. a correlation as well. You tend to end up speaking actually more throughout their childhood to the firstborn child. But to make it nice and clear for parents about how, simple, how important that first thousand days are, when I'm working with dads who are covered in tattoos and skinhead and stuff and they're not going to take on a lot of the details, I will say the more words you speak per day in the first year of life to your child, the more money they will be earning at 32. Mm. Because that kind of summarises all of that, and, uh, mm. you know. But it depends what audience I've got as to how much complexity you're going to go into. There's so much I could ask about this, but mm-hmm. does does um, I forget the fancy word. Yeah. I know it's not that fancy, but does pre-birth pregnancy matter? Absolutely, it matters. Is all that chatting that to them and playing yes. the Mozart and stuff and domestic violence you're exposed to during pregnancy. You know, it's um that first thousand days that we talk about starts at conception. So it includes all of the pregnancy. And then in the first thousand days, well, the whole yep. kit and caboodle, you've given me a good tip there. So I'm a parent, well, I yep. am, but they're yep. older now. But yep. um, uh, I should be talking a lot to them. Yep. What else? What are some tips, top tips for parents? Um, being in relationship with them. You know, it's, um, I mean, it's good to your talk. We, I'd encourage you, if you don't know what to say, then use parallel talk, which is like sports commentary. Oh, look, he's putting his hand up into his mouth and he's biting his fingers because you're still exposing them to language, and that's yes. a good thing. But it's mainly actually about being attuned to your baby and being in relationship with them. The more, you know, your brain's amazing, my brain's amazing, but the real amazing things about brains are when they come together. So it's when you're connected to your child, the more you're connected, the um, the better all their outcomes are going to be. Yeah, yeah, I feel like I read this somewhere. I could be completely wrong, but you're a bit critical of the old kind of, which we did a bit with our oldest, Emlyn, like you say. I don't right. think we did by the for second or the third ones. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, showing them the cards with the ze- black and white zebra and the yeah. goldfish and the numbers yeah. and all yeah, that yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. stuff. What, you, you into that? Be, I wouldn't be critical of that. I just don't think that that's served you any purpose. Um, right. A baby can't think symbolically until they're 18 months old, so showing them a picture of a fish that actually, <laughs> or a picture of a yellow rubber ducky that looks nothing like a duck. Yes. This actually means nothing to them. <laughs> oh, well. So I don't think it did any harm though. You were talking to them. Well, I think so he, I'm not critical he, of it. I think it. he chewed them. <laughs> no, I think he probably I'm not critical of it because it did yeah. absolutely no harm. Um, it's a, but yeah, and, and it had you interacting with your child, so it was a good thing. Yes. Um, it just probably didn't do all of the seven-year-old things that you thought they was, was going to do. <laughs> because you've um, because you've spent all this time in university and you come from Milton and he was a, we were talking about this earlier, I'm trying to impress you here, but you know he was a poet like 500 years ago or something. My, my wife's favourite yeah. poet is um, Philip Larkin, a poem, and, and he's got a you know, very famous poem. There's something like, you know, they fuck you up, your mum and dad, they don't mean to, but they, they do. Um, one thing that sort of wor- no, it doesn't worry me, but I'm yeah. interested in your view. Mm-hmm. Like, a lot of parents might be a bit intimidated by this, though. They yeah. might have stuffed it up. Yeah, yeah, or they yeah, might yeah, have... Um, yeah. um, and there's no such thing as a perfect parent, no, is there? No, I mean, I have exactly the same fears. 
That's probably worse for me because I'm on as a parenting expert. Yeah, so shame on you. It just takes one of my kids to decide to write a daddy dearest book and decide <laughs> that they're pissed off. And you know, and I, wait I have, till you die. Don't I have worry. times that, that comes quite close with one of my one of my kids. Yeah. You know, that, we talk about a sandpaper baby, the one of our kids that probably rubs us the wrong way. And so, you know, I've got that. So um, I don't pretend. I've never set myself up as a parenting expert, you know. I've set myself up as someone that knows the research and can summarise it quickly for you and you're in charge of what you do as a parent, you know. I want to be helpful and guiding. I don't want to be judgmental. um, I'm not a perfect parent. I've got, you know... um, Yeah, I think I've been a good parent. I'm proud of my parenting. I really put a lot of effort into my parenting and I I made an effort to... um, you know, finish work at three o'clock when the kids were, you know, teenagers and stuff to be at home and really put my money where my mouth is. I'd stayed at home in the Too late by years. then, though, isn't it? Well, I stayed at home in the infant years, too. With, right. you know, they also went into childcare. But, um, yeah. But I don't, would never think that I've done a perfect job. And I also know that 50% of their outcomes were already determined at birth and had nothing to do with me. If I get a temperament clash, it is possible to be a wonderful parent and have a delinquent child. Yes. It is possible to be a Absolutely. delinquent parent and have a wonderful child. Absolutely. But we're just talking most of the time. So I think we need to be compassionate to all parents, really. Yeah. 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 And it's hard, right? I mean, um, this is the same for you know my wife and I. Um, uh, we both work. And we're busy and we're yeah. running around and that's true for, yep. you know, I'm sure most yep. uh, people who are listening right now. I that's think. Right. What, but what I take from what you're saying, though, as well, though, is what would be, we've talked about about what good looks like, yeah. what bad looks like, and I'm not talking obviously abusive yeah, and all yeah. of that stuff at one real end of it, but yeah. is what bad at a level looks like is kind of um, them left to their own devices Yep. as a literally yep. um, without any stimulation or yep. love or comfort. Yeah. Or, or worse, or on worse. the iPad. Yeah, yeah, well, we'll come to that. Um, that's, I mean, which is, well, let's do it yeah. now. That's right. the issue of our times, isn't it? Yeah, so they'd be better to be left by themselves without an iPad than they would be to left by themselves with an iPad, I think. An iPad, yeah. you know, to a young baby is a flashing light, and a flashing light just arouses the brainstem. And the more your brainstem's aroused in the early years, the less of that, you know, frontal cortex is likely to come online, so. It's addictive, right? Mm. As addictive yeah. as drugs. Yeah, it doesn't give you the what your brain's evolved for in the last, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, which is that human interaction. Your brain acts very different on an iPad. Even when it's pretending to be interactive, it acts very, very different than it does when actually talking to a human being. So it's a, it's a bit of a danger. So you're a parent, um, and mm. you're not, but it's, you know, you're yep. a parent of a five-year-old. Yeah. I've um, got a granddaughter that's five. And, and they mm. want the iPad or your device mm. or yep. whatever it is. Yep. Um, what's your advice on that? Um, I'm not going to beat myself up if I, am, if I do it. You know, but I will only do it as a last resort. But I'm not going to have to pretend to be super parent or have to be always. Sometimes it might be a bad day, having got my shit together, um, my tolerance level's low, and I just need her to, you know, just give her, give her the iPad. Yeah. But that's not going to be my first port of call all of the time. I'm going to try and have days where I'm not tired and I'm not strung out, and I'm going to try and distract her. Day in, day out, you're doing mm-hmm. them at a service. Yeah. What do you yeah. think about um, actually at school, though? So? Because I, I, yeah. I, I'll be tell you, I, I don't like it. I just think there needs to be boundaries around it. I know from the research that if your child has two hours a day device-free time, they seem to get all the benefits they get from not having any devices. So is the school ensuring there's two hours where they aren't using those devices? Because kids are also you know, moving and doing PE and doing art and stuff. If you construct it in such a way where there's two solid hours every day where the children don't have devices, the school could technically argue that they're providing what the research shows is mm. you know, a protective factor. The other thing about all of this is, you know, if we're talking, 
that I suppose is a sort of a not a direct because you know so much more than me, but an indirect challenge to what you're saying is yep. if you think about the greatest people uh-huh. uh, who've invented and created and driven change and done this yep. thing, often they've had terrible upbringings. Yeah. They they haven't had anything you're talking about, or you yeah. know, in fact, they've had the the worst of it, and you're an example yeah. of that. Yeah. And yet they have somehow, maybe it's the chip on their shoulder or both their shoulders, yep. they have achieved amazing things. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I don't think that's that's the, it's important to understand because that's absolutely true. But it's important to understand that's the exception to the rule. Right. Um, most people who have experienced a traumatic child, there's way more of them in prison right now than yeah. there are having achieved those wonderful things. So I think it's multifaceted. I think some of it is those resilience factors I talked about before. If we could study each of their lives, they might have had resilience factors the other ones didn't have. A huge part of it's got to be 50% of your outcomes are determined at birth. So it's got nothing to do with what happened in the environment. It's your temperament. Your temperament doesn't change the rest of your life. Um, you know, sometimes those people were born to be great and there was nothing that was going to get in the way of that. Mm. You know, I think that's possible as well. So yeah. I don't think there is a, I, you know, the stuff that I put forward is what happens most of the time because I'm actually a living contradiction to most of the stuff that I teach. Mm. So I'm well aware that it doesn't, there isn't a black and white answer. You know, I mean, that children going into childcare in the first year of life. My children went into childcare in the first year of life um, and they weren't wrecked. But, you know, it's, it's still clear that there are no research-based benefits for children being in a childcare centre in the first three years of life. Right. The benefits are all to the economy. Parents get upset when I say that as if I'm beating them up for putting their kids in childcare, and I'm not, because actually I put my kids into childcare. You can do things like I made sure my daughter, they would put her down for a sleep in the afternoon at the centre, and um, they stopped her having a sleep so that she wouldn't be up all night. I was like, no, keep her down for a sleep, because most of the stress comes in the afternoon to be at the childcare, and now she stays awake till 9 o'clock at night. So now I'm spending five hours a day with my two-year-old, mm. whereas if she was going for, not going for a sleep, she'd get mm. home and I'd spend an hour. So there's things that you do that you can mitigate it's not about beating people up. That we all live in the same modern world where we have bugger all choice. And, and I appreciate it's nothing about this simple, but yeah. um, in simple terms, all if, if, if they are at home up to three with mum and dad yeah. and getting that nurturing and so on, that is better than an early childhood yes. uh, centre. Yes. But as you say, then there's sort of real life and work and all yeah. that. But it's also true to say that in a research-based way, the only children that are better off in a childcare centre in the first three years are children living in homes that so abuse if they should be removed by the authorities. So even the kid that's not getting the best but would not be removed by the authorities still gets better outcomes than going to a childcare centre. So let's say they are an early childhood um, centre and and you, I believe, are an advocate for that, you know, what I would call free play child-led environment. Absolutely. And and I'm sitting there as a complete layperson and I say, you know, look, it looks unorganised, chaotic. So yeah. It's like the opposite of good learning. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Why? What, what's actually going on there that I'm missing? Um, you're thinking that children are little seven-year-olds and the type of learning that you think that needs structure and organisation and, and transformative thinking and yeah, symbolic thinking, that you just need to start practising that when you're two. And you don't. It's not how your brain works. Before that, you have to be creative. All those people you talked about that invented new things and changed the world and stuff, I bet you they come from an early childhood but they didn't learn to read until they were seven. So their creativity was allowed to expand. Hey, Chris. Yes. Do you want another very broad question? I've got a very broad question today. Go on, then. What do you know about sports? Up the wires, go the Black Caps, and don't forget Premier League football. Oh, you do love a bit of Premier League footage, do. don't you? What team is it that you support again? Oh, the current champions, Manchester City. I think they're pronounced Arsenal. It's pronounced Arsenal. Uh, but you know what's good about football? It what? They don't regulate soccer. I'm sorry. 
There's a sport that regulates sock height? Indeed there is, and it's cycling. That's very strange. Why on earth do they regulate it? Well, I know, but if you want to find out, you'll have to listen to the Big Stuff Quiz, wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, that's a cliffhanger indeed. The Big Stuff Quiz is brought to you by Melbourne Every Bit Different. What do you make of the different school approaches? Like there's, and I, you know, I think I've had kids and a bit of all of these things. You yeah. know, you've got Montessori, Rudolf Steiner, yeah. the, all, the, the ordinary. Forest school. What, 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 what are you, yeah. without getting you in yeah. hot water and saying something yeah. controversial, if you take those sort of approaches, what are yeah. you like? Um, I think it's 80% about the teacher that you get right, and not yes. about what theory they come under. If I was to take those approaches that you mention, it's hard because I like aspects of each of them but I might disagree with other aspects. So I don't think the philosophy matters too much, and I think it's not got to be catered to your actual child. You know, Montessori is quite structured. So if I've got a boy who's not the firstborn, who's quite wild and can't focus his attention, then that could be ideal. If I've got a firstborn girl who's already out to please everybody and is already trying to, you know, is already way ahead, um, then going to a Montessori and, and expanding on that is not necessarily... I would want to You're take her down the creative path. describing my family. Right. I'd want to take her <laughs> down the creative path, you know, because... Creativity under the age of seven, so much of problem solving is creativity. Mm. It's that ability to generate solutions. And that doesn't come from nowhere. It doesn't come from your genes. It comes from a free play, child-led curriculum under the age of seven where, like you say, they look chaotic and like they're wasting their time. What they're doing is following their own process and they're forming an identity as a learner, as a little scientist, interacting with the world. It's what we call dispositions. You're the dispositions that actually determine how well you're going to do. Dispositions like how long you focus your attention. When they're in a free play environment, they'll focus their attention for up to 20 minutes on something that they've chosen. When we're in an adult-led curriculum, where we take them to the mat, they focus their attention for seven minutes. How long you focus your attention? A persevering through failure. When they're wasting their time building a sandcastle, they probably have to build it three or four times before it stands up. So they've learned to persevere through three or four failures to get success. When we have adult-led curriculum, we bring them to the mat. What colour is this? What number is this? They tend to what, try once. If they get it wrong, they stop and shut down. Those dispositions are what it's actually needed under the age of seven. It's not... Um, they're not little seven-year-olds needing literacy and numeracy and structure and order. And then from seven, uh, so you're an advocate for mm-hmm. basically we should have a system like they do in some countries, which yeah. is you don't get that formal reading, writing, mm-hmm. arithmetic yep. until seven. I'm yep, picking up right. loud and clear. Yep. And when those some countries you talk about, they're all the countries that get the top of the PISA scores. You right. know, the international measure that we use for how right. good that education system is, all of them are basically Scandinavian countries. They allow that creativity. It's not just about making them academically. I would say the probably the largest factor in our teenage suicide rate is the fact that we don't allow creativity under the age of seven and we bring in that structured, organised mind too early and it causes an, a big uptake in anxiety and depression because that anxiety and depression is a really about black and white thinking and we've squashed all that creativity by teaching them to read at three and taught black and white thinking. So when the 15-year-old gets depressed... If he's been in that structured thinking right from three, he generates one solution. I'll go jogging. It don't work. He gives up, locks himself in his room, gets more risk of suicide. The kid who was at playing at seven had to build the dam in the river, had failed 19 times before he finally dammed the river at time 20. He gets depressed as a 15-year-old, generates a solution, go jogging. When it doesn't work, he generates another solution. I'll adjust my diet. When that doesn't work, he generates another solution. I'll spend time with my grandparents. Not a big leap to work out why that creativity... You know, that makes them much more resilient as teenagers. Amongst the disposition traits and the differences, mm-hmm. there are, as a generalisation, differences between boys and girls? Um, yeah, well, in those cognitive measures, when we take, because we tend to measure the cognitive stuff, which is a seven year old stuff. But um, 
yeah, we don't tend to measure those dispositions. They've got the research basis to do that, but they're harder to measure. And, you know, learning stories in early childhood tend to capture those dispositions, but it's not what the ministry measures. I suppose I'm just trying to ask you, if you're dealing with a boy, you're dealing with a girl, whether they're three, five or eight... Should we treat them differently? Not, not in, maybe they yeah. go to the same class, and but but, yeah. but you know would cope. cope uh, I mean, there are differences in the research, but again, yeah. it's like you know we know that boys who are not the firstborn tend to be the slowest developers. Um, so you know, um, firstborn girls tend to reach full adult you know brain showing adult brain scan most of the time at the age of eighteen. A boy who's not the firstborn like me doesn't show that same scan until they're thirty-two. So. Yes, it takes a lot longer. So a boy, your firstborn daughter gets to school at five, she can already write her name, she already knows the alphabet, she can already count to 100. Your boy who's not the firstborn um, isn't going to show much interest in that stuff till he's seven. So after they've been, after your boy who's, your firstborn daughter's been at school for a year, she's been told, aren't you clever, aren't you a good girl, aren't you a hard worker? Really encouraging positive dispositions. Your boy who's not the firstborn, who is developmentally not actually ready for that and would do far better if you just waited till he was seven and let him learn it in six weeks and think, shit, I'm clever. We don't, we introduce it at five as well. And it's normally a long, slow, drawn out, painful process in which they experience repeated failure. And by the end of one year at school, boy who's not the firstborn has generally been told, you lack focus, you're not trying hard enough, you're naughty. And it's probably those messages that do the do the problem. But the, you can't then say that of every firstborn girl and every boy who's not the firstborn. They can only ever be sure. guidelines because they're individual people and you've got Absolutely. to take all a million other things that influence them into account. If we jump forward to sort of older kids and what's mm-hmm. happening in school, you know, yep. we've talked free play, we've talked sort of, you know, that need for creativity and not actually giving them this formalised, structured yep. uh, stuff. And, you know, you make some very... very speak very powerfully about that. When we get older, um, the traditionalist in me wants to ask, are we yeah. all right then to be giving them yes. a bit of structure? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, because, right. you know, um, spare the rod, spoil the child. Originally comes <laughs> from a Jesuit saying about, it wasn't about discipline, about hitting them. It was, yeah, we're given a rod when you were seven that you pointed the words at to read the words. So spare the rod meant don't teach them literacy, oh. spoil the child. You don't really reach all their full potential. And that's true. Literacy is wonderful because it's a repetitive pattern. It really, um, you know, uses that frontal cortex. Repetitive patterns are wonderful for your frontal cortex. I only advocate that we wait until that naturally comes online. You can't force that. Even Piaget, our whole education system is based on Piaget's stages of cognitive development. He's, he didn't have brain scans, just through observing children. He could see that they learned a different, in a different way. They had this symbolic thinking and stuff between the ages of seven and eight. He called it the concrete operational stage. I'd just say, now you're ready to be in your frontal cortex. I want to cast forward to teenagers. Mm-hmm. Um, y- y- you've told me that uh, or I've seen, I should say, that you say that part of their brain's quite shut for renovation. Wow. What's going on with yeah. these yeah, it's a, naughty teenagers? Yeah, again, it's about trying to make it meaningful to parents. You know, now I'll go on after that to go, actually, um, 10% of the time they're just as much an adult as you are. 10% of the time they can control their emotions just as much as you, you know, and plan for the future just as much as you. So it's not really so much shut for renovations as it is, it's it's um shut, oh, I, it's, it's possible I made that up. No no no, no I, I don't no, I do say right. that. I do say that. It's just when you that's a way of getting parents to understand it because yeah. they see the things in a frontal cortex, a kid's ability to empathize with others, um, control their emotions, all go backwards. So it's, it's because they're all frontal cortex functions and it's basically shut for renovations. But the literature's really moved over the last two years sort of to going to pointing that out that actually Shut for renovations makes it sound like they're underdeveloped, and they're not underdeveloped. All of that stuff is there, all of the empathy and controlled emotions. It's just they're wired in such a way that it's cut off from them, kind of, you know, 90% of the time. A kid in their in the teenage years is primed to live in their limbic system. 
So it makes them incredibly creative. So they're wonderful at being inventive. Uh, you can say that any invention that significantly advanced mankind come from the brain of a teenager. No adults ever invented anything significant. No adults ever come up with any significant idea that's advanced human thinking. You know? It's a bit like in you know a lot of artists. I mean, the best yeah. stuff is yeah. under thirty-two. Yeah, yeah. When you're and then they're out the other side and they don't do anything yeah. again. There's yeah. a few exceptions. So they're good at being creative and innovative, but that's for the same reason because this frontal cortex is kind of shut for innovations. Or... So, what would your advice be to a parent of a troubled or troublesome? Um, I'm not talking about the more serious mental right, health yep, stuff. Yep. We might come to that, yep. but but. What, what what should we just got to yeah. kind of be, wait it out? No, we, well, in some ways we do because that's what we all do, isn't it? Um, in some ways, it's control your own anger. Anger ain't going to help anything. He said wisely now that he's a grandfather, but didn't, <laughs> didn't actually do it at the time. Yeah. Um, but you know, looking yeah. back, it, anger doesn't really help anything. Yeah. Um, I'd say you'd need to focus more on the quality of your relationship and not on the power and control stuff of getting them to do as they're told. Um, they, yeah. Um, and there's simple things that you can do to improve the quality of your relationship um, with your kids. Um, yeah, so if they're having trouble with the kid, I'd give them tips like that. I um, I, you know, I, I used to be a criminal lawyer, and I, I don't, I don't want to be guilty of leading the witness here mm. and telling you what I want you to say because yeah, I, yeah. I don't, I don't mind what you say. You say whatever yeah, you want. Yeah, yeah. But when I was a politician, I um was one of the few young fogies that voted against lifting the alcohol uh, or dropping the alcohol age from twenty to eighteen. Right. I voted against um, various things around cannabis reform. Right. And one of my big reasons um, was around um, you know what we know um, about, and I'm not saying I know particularly strongly, but the kind of the literature on what, what this does to teenagers' brains. Yeah. What do you sort of say about drugs, both booze and if we take the real yeah. common one, cannabis. And- yeah, I was um, involved in writing submissions to uh, the government at the same time too to say to leave the drinking age of 20. This whole international organisation is called Not Until 21 because the research is clear that if you could wave a magic wand and no one drank alcohol until they were 21, 99 to 100% of our problems with alcohol would disappear. That's even our domestic violence problems and our accident emergency. When the 45-year-old man goes out, has a dozen cans, wipes out his frontal cortex, loses empathy, understanding a consequence, goes home and beats up his partner... People think that's a problem with alcohol at 45. It's not. It's a problem with alcohol when he was a teenager. If he hadn't weakened his frontal cortex as a teenager with alcohol, then he wouldn't wipe out his cortex as an adult. He necessarily wouldn't lose empathy, wouldn't go home. So even all of the problems we have with alcohol are to do with the damage it does to the teenage brain. So, yeah, I would say... Cannabis? To to um, cannabis the pro- is under 18. So it does problem that you lose on average eight IQ points if you smoke marijuana under the age of 18. There's no evidence you lose any IQ points if you smoke it after 18. The only other causative thing we know for sure about marijuana is it can trigger um, schizophrenia. You know, the, so you have to have the genes for schizophrenia. And there's no evidence that it triggers that after the age of 19. You know, so it's really the marijuana stuff just relates to under 18. It's damaging for the under 18-year-old. But it really does nothing after that. Let's, um, let's say that I'm a mum or dad or, you know, someone's listening here and they, mm. they are or they're an uncle or a an aunt or wider family, yep. and they've done everything wrong, yep. right? Yeah. Uh, and, and they're yep. sitting listening and saying, you know, this is terrible. Yep. Um, so whether it's them thinking about their kids or actually themselves yep. and their upbringing, yep. actually, yep. I, I suppose what I want to get into is your view, but I'm sure that's based on evidence, mm-hmm. that you know you can actually change the wiring. It's not sort of too late. And I think yeah, the fancy absolutely. concept is, is neuroplasticity. Yep. Get, get, run, mm. run me through that as a as a as Just a, like um, you said, really. Concept. Just the, the neuroplasticity is that brain's ability to rewire itself and to bring on board new behaviours. 
and we are living in the age of neuroplasticity. So just like you indicated, we know there's much more pliability than we previously thought. So yeah, you absolutely can change. Even when we talk about predicting kids' outcomes from the age of three, you know, we can predict your outcomes. Actually, when you're in your mother's womb, we can predict a lot of your outcomes, mm. but we can predict heaps of outcomes from when you're at the age of three. It's not because you're set at the age of three. It's because most people don't have an intervention. So if you were living once or warriors or some abusive, horrible life, zero to three, the majority of those children stay living that life until they're 18. That's why we can predict their outcomes. But if you move them out of that abusive environment and you move them into a loving, caring home, absolutely the brain responds and the brain changes and typically those children will be resilient. But if I'm sitting there and I'm 25, 30, 35, yep. and I've got a problem, it's drinking, let's say, or yeah. it's some other behavioural thing short of that. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe I'm just addicted to my iPad and I'm, yeah. you know, I'm going to... I, yeah. I don't, well, but tell me about what does change look like for that to kind of... Is, this, is it yeah. just as simple as consistent kind of behavioural kind of... It is. It's self-control. Self-control right. is the key word. Self-control and your brain. I mean, basically everything you do is a neural pathway in your brain. And the reason you do it automatically is because it's covered in myelin. You could say it takes about 90 to 100 repetitions. So if I've got the self-control to get up and get out of bed 90 days in a row and go to the gym, then after 90 days it's a fairly automatic behaviour. I've changed my brain, the neuroplasticity of my brain. I've got a neural pathway just as strong to say get up and go to the gym as I do to say, to say lying in bed. But to get those new behaviours up and running, um, it's you know like I say, they've got lots of neuroplasticity, you can do it, but you need the self-control to get your ass out of bed. The 90 days in a row. I suppose it's a bit like, is it? And there's no science behind what I'm saying, but I'm just listening to you. Mm -hmm. um, it's a bit like any muscle, is it? Yeah. I, if I keep lifting the weights, yep. as you can tell, I do a lot of that. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you laughing? Uh, yeah, um, sorry, sorry. You know, the same is true with my brain. That yeah. exercise, it builds the strength. It is. It is. Your brain, people tend to think that their brain chemistry dictates who they are. But I think modern science tells us who you are dictates your brain chemistry. Do you have? Daily regimes or things you do that you'd sort of say have come out of your learning, or yep, I don't want yep, to make yep. you look no, like a weirdo here, but I have daily, I have daily um, hassle myself that I'm not walking the talk and doing the things that I know all right. the learning is. You know, so I have let the gym lapse, even though I know you know how beneficial that is, how many endorphins it releases. You know, I don't let things get really bad. I still walk a bit and stuff, but I think we're always trying to live our higher selves. And I don't pretend that I stay in my higher self all the time. I have moments of being in my higher self where I'm going to the gym and I'm eating properly and I'm cutting down on my sugar. And I have other moments where I have 12 cups of coffee a day and I put mm. three sugars in them. And, um, yeah, and I can't be bothered going to the gym. You're a terrible person. Yeah, I know. But I think we're all trying to get that level of self-motivation. The more you do it, the more you, um, you know, the easier it is. The more supports you have around you and the better you manage your life, you know, if I live with a whole bunch of fat, lazy alcoholics, I'm probably not going to go to the gym. <laughs> you know, if I live with motivated people, then it's more likely. So yes. there's things you can do to increase it. But at the end of the day, it comes down to self-control. Your ability to make yourself do the shit you know is good for you, but you don't really want to do. Have you ever suffered, um, and I have no basis on which to ask mm -hmm. this, but I just, have you ever yourself suffered from, you know, what you would call serious, um, more than just normal anxiety or depression? Anxiety, yes, but not, not depression, no. What's the um, what's going on in the brain, and what's the sort of the? Um, I, I mean, I've been fascinated on this podcast yeah. alone. Right. Um, just you know, the number of people who you know, it's a really, and I, I feel very blessed that you know, I've mm -hmm. been depressed from time to time. I've had yeah. anxiety, but nothing that I would consider was you know, um, yeah. at any level clinical. Yeah. A lot of people, whether successful or interesting, with it, they, they they've really suffered experience. That, what yeah. do you say is going on? What do, what what do you think are the basic yeah. answers? Does it come back to that neuroplasticity? Does it? Or? 
Um, you know, I mean, anxiety and depression are kind of different things. I think the people that have suffered it and come back from it in some ways have an edge because now they've got the tools in place to know how to get back from there. And the more you get back from there, the stronger your brain is in some ways. It makes your brain fitter because um, you can wallow there for the longest time. But if you get out of it, it's usually because you did got up and did stuff. And the first time's the hardest. The next time will be easier. So in some ways, they've got skills that the rest of us don't have. So it's, you know, maybe better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all, sort of thing. Mm. Um, Anxiety for me is often trauma. It's people's, um, you've got brain number one is your survival brain, your brainstem, fight, fight, flight, freeze. And brain number four, that frontal cortex where all your good stuff is, they essentially work like they're on a set of scales. And if you experience early trauma, your brainstem is aroused. and You go on hyperarousal because you don't know what's going to happen. You're in an unpredictable environment. It's, um, it's, it's negative. You have to stand hyperarousal to be aware of what's going to happen. If you're being looked after by your nana and you're in a ahura mōwai, you know, you're blissed out in a heaven-like state, um, then your brainstem comes down and you can afford to evolve and, and develop all of those frontal cortex things which are about attuning to people and stuff, which you don't get to do if you're in a state of anxiety. So usually anxiety is people who have experienced trauma early on and their brain's been automatically set on hyperarousal. So they've gone through their life kind of on hyperarousal and it's harder work for them to access their frontal cortex. Um, but they've all got neuroplasticity. They can all do it if they do meditation and um, yoga seems to be the number one in the literature that actually is the most effective way to change that. Do you do any of that stuff? Yep, I do. Yeah, so, and, But and not as often as I should. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I, I notice that when I do get anxious, um, and I, I get, I, I sort of got a little bit depressed, but I much relate more to anxiety than depression. Right. Um, I notice I don't do the things. So part of being anxious and being depressed and being at the low of your self is that you can have that knowledge, but you don't have the motivation to do it. You don't have the self-care or the... So, and that, then you find yourself beating yourself up twice as much because I know what I'm supposed to be doing. Mm. <laughs> I know I'm supposed to be getting to make that religion. head knowledge, heart knowledge. Yeah, 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 yeah. You are, you said to me, 51. Yep. Um, in good shape for a 51-year-old. I don't want to do anyway, but, 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 and you've lived life. You've, you mm-hmm. know, we've heard in this podcast of, you mm-hmm. know, rollicking story about once we're warriors yeah. through to universities, through to, you know, very influential in, in your, in your fields. Um, what's left for you? Well, I mean, not, you know, I'm not sure you've got lot, lots of years left, but yeah. what do you sort of look forward to and say, oh, this is what I, this is what I want to be doing. Is I still aspire to do this. Yeah, like it's hard to answer that without sounding a bit corny. You know that I've just really. I remember thinking early on, you're only here for about eighty years. So what are you going to do? What's the most well used fakatoki from Māori have? You know what's the most important thing in the world? It's people. But if you're going to be here and you're going to make a contribution, it might as well be to people and make the world a better place for people. I don't want to be, you know. Someone that's contributing to negativity, so I don't want to be a lawyer, <laughs> <laughs> lawyer, politician, or a businessman. Yeah. Hey, I thought hey, from my perspective they were like, you know, contributing to negativity. So yeah. I thought, no, I want to do something that contributes to positive. Well, that's why I do this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> this is my little yeah. giving. Back. And when I think of all humans, so how can I help all humans? Well, all humans are babies, and that's actually my, the most foundational time of your life. So, what I'd like to do is have a bigger, wide, worldwide influence on people respecting babies more. And I think we will tap into the potential of human beings a whole lot more if we treat our babies like human beings right from the time they're born, whereas now we treat them like human becomings, someone who will become worthy of human rights. So treat them like they're full human beings. I think give them the vote when they're seven. Mm. Yep. Um, and then I think the world will be a whole lot better place. Well, wow. And all the reasons why you're now giving me why you can't give an eight-year-old a vote are all the same reasons they gave for why you can't give black people or women votes. They weren't valid then and they're not valid now. 
Well, was <laughs> but I don't expect list. everybody else to agree with me, though. Well, I suppose <laughs> I would just say, look, it's, what what worries me is that they, um, they, mm. you know, you're, I've yeah. got an eight-year-old Harry, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I could think about giving him in the vote. He's an yeah. articulate, clear yeah, yeah. He's got um, opinion. little guy with some very yeah. well-formed yeah. opinions. Yeah. I don't yeah. always agree with them. Um, mm-hmm. But... Yeah, so let's leave that alone, actually, because I don't know where to go with that one. Um, but I think that, people want to say, but you could easily influence him. But the rest of us are all easily influenced as well. Mm. We're not, it doesn't stop us from voting. You, know, you is, could say he doesn't know enough about it. Well, most people are ignorant that vote. <laughs> they know nothing about it. So none of those criteria apply to oh, us. I'll leave everyone else in my family out. That's <laughs> terrible what you just said. I, I, I was going to say to you, actually, before you'd even gone there, I, I, I don't want to do politics, right? Mm-hmm. I've come from that and yeah. blah, blah, blah. But if you could have Jacinda Ardern or Chris Luxon in this room and say, look, you're going to do, I'm hypnotising you and you're going to do everything I say to you. Yeah. What are some changes you would make to the way we do stuff in this little country or, you know, indeed? I would want to do what Scandinavian countries do. I want to actually have a research-based approach to what we do in the first thousand days of life, you know, to have... um, all the stuff that the research tells us. Pay the mum 80% of her salary to stay at home in the first year of life. So it's increased language, so it's increased cortical growth so that you know we lower the suicide rate and we achieve all the good outcomes. Yeah, you know, I would tell them to action the actual research that is solid that we've had for 20 years, not the ambiguous stuff, but the solid stuff that we know that's internationally accepted um, to action that. Whereas now we're going down a path of being like more focused on the business roundtable and we want everyone at work, so don't worry about what happens to the babies who are being... Put in institutions to be so it's all these policies to b- make it easier to get the child into the early childhood rather than actually to making it easier for the for a parent not necessarily the mother could be the father but for a parent to stay at home with the child and in, in the early years yeah. and if they are going to go to a child care center because you know that's it's good to have that option that they are structured in such a way that they provide a primary relationship and not a roster mm, you know there's, there's options and ways of doing things and then at age eight they're deciding the prime minister and starting to learn to read and write, and then who's to say you're wrong? I talk to them. I try and talk to them actually about in an impassioned way about you're going to be a politician for a certain amount of time and you're going to have a certain amount of influence. The economic policies and stuff that you put in place right now will probably be gone and be rather meaningless you know, in 20 years' time. But the stuff you put in place now for human beings in the first thousand days of life will have a lifetime impact. You know, So do something meaningful that has a lifetime impact. Well, we end this... Um, Nathan, the way we always do with the general knowledge section, that's what we call it. And everyone gets the same question. So here's your three. Right, yep. What single object would you save from your house? I've got a box of treasures that I, because I'm not much of a hoarder, so I do tend to throw things out and then afterwards think, oh, damn, I need that now. <laughs> so I'm the opposite to a hoarder. But I've got a box of treasures of special things that the kids gave me because I don't collect every picture and stuff. You know, so it's down to one box, you know, and it's got um, it's got my one of my foster mothers um, who's passed away, a phone with her a voice on it, you know, on the, on the message. It's got uh, this um, box that my son made me at kindy that he said I could put all my dreams into and they'd all come true. It's stuff that's sentimental and meaningful because... I mean, I like stuff, I like things, but I don't get overly attached to them. So That reminds yeah. me of a Pablo Neruda, I think his name is, poem about stuff and things. But yeah. I just thought I'd get that in there because we've been talking <laughs> poems and fancy poets. Yeah, yeah. Um, you've got like, this is not one of the general knowledge mm-hmm. questions, but I think I'm right to say you've got like, um, you've got armour, you've got ancient kind of Greek artefacts yeah. and stuff. You So you like that kind of cool stuff that's got yeah, a story. Yeah, interesting, don't like to be normal. So yeah, my house. Weirdest thing you've got then? 
I don't know the weirdest thing I've got. Um, well, not weird. That's wrong word. Probably I've got the um, I've I've got a replica of my own version of a Doctor Who console in the set for my office desk. So it's got you know uh, it's got a bowl with two hearts in it because Time Lords have two hearts and a bubbling water. And so I want my house to look really interesting to my grandchildren. Oh, my grandchildren. So they come, come and go, around wow, and they're like, yeah. This is the most amazing house ever. Yeah. So that's why I like interesting, quirky stuff. And I think just the upbringing I had. One of the foster mothers I had was a witch. And she had lots of weird, interesting, quirky stuff in her house. And I loved the atmosphere that it created. I'm imagining, yeah. like, I don't know, frogs' legs and spiders. Yeah, there was a bit of that. And, no, no. Yeah, it was mainly more crystals right, and, right, you, right. Know, you know, feathers yeah. and things. Interesting. Mm-hmm. What's the best night out you've ever had? Yeah, you're telling me about this question. I like to think about it. Oh, <laughs> God. I got down to three nights, really. Well, you, know you can't, after, after what yeah. you've told me earlier, you can't go out for a night on the booze. Oh, right, yeah. No, I did all that as a teenager. Right. I was pretty rebellious and just smoked lots of pot and lots of, um, lots of alcohol from like 11 until about 18. I was over it by then, by the time I got to uni. Um, yeah, but the best nights out, there was, what I noticed was all three of them were to do with having a sense of belonging. One was after a wānanga, my first immersion wānanga in Te Reo Māori that I went to, and we all went out on, on the town afterwards, and I just felt really that I belonged as Māori, whereas, you know, being pale-skinned and um, not necessarily knowing my whakapapa early on, you can feel excluded from that. And so having that wānanga and then going out with them and really being accepted as part of the group, and so we just had a brilliant night, you know. Um, I was in Egypt just before COVID, and they had this wonderful, wonderful stereotype of being a New Zealander. So they just treated me like a king, and they invited me along to this wedding, and I went to this wedding. And, you know, it's got all these stories like, you know, they were like, American and English are bad white people. Australians are quite good white people. New Zealanders, good white people. <laughs> and so he was very, they were really impressed that I could um, speak te reo Māori, that, that, um, that um, yeah, a white New Zealander would also speak the indigenous language. I think they thought every New Zealander could because I could. <laughs> but the stereotype was so positive. I felt so proud being a New Zealander. And I feel like you had a third. Yeah, yeah. The third one was going back to Milton and having to go back, and I was there for New Year's Eve, and going, oh, God, stuck in Milton for New Year's Eve. How boring is this going to be? And I had one of the best nights ever at the local country club. And again, it was a sense of belonging. I never really felt like I belonged in Milton. I was a bit weird, didn't fit in. And so having all the locals be so pleased to see me and accept me, again, a strong sense of belonging, so... What's the best advice given to you and who gave it? Be my nana cook. She said, um, she said, how you treat other people is not a reflection of their worth, it's a reflection of your worth. So treat everybody else like they are someone important. It's absolutely right. Hey, Nathan Watts, it's been fantastic to have you over this hour on Generally Famous. You've been listening to Generally Famous. There's a new episode every Wednesday. You can listen to them all at stuff.co.nz slash generallyfamous or wherever you get your podcasts. In fact, if you follow us on Apple or Spotify, any of the podcast apps, in fact, you'll get the latest episode automatically. Sounds good, right? Thanks to my producer, Chris Reed. I'm Simon Bridges. I really appreciate you listening. If you liked listening to this pod, help us make more like this. Visit stuff.co.nz support. If you don't have time to read the in-depth stories or you just prefer to listen instead, The Long Read From Stuff is the podcast for you. Each week we showcase one of our excellent pieces of journalism, telling important or entertaining stories from the world of crime, sport, history, culture and more. You also get to hear from the journalists themselves about how they uncovered the story and how it came to life. So for your weekly dose of long-form journalism, 
beautifully read, subscribe to The Long Read From Stuff wherever you get your podcasts.